scripture reading this morning is from the book of Matthew, and I want to encourage you to turn there in your Bible or find it on your phone. Uh, Read along with me as I read the words of Jesus that I believe will help us understand our passage in 1 Peter in just a moment. It's Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10, beginning in verse 16. Jesus is speaking, and he is addressing his disciples. He is giving them instructions about how to go tell the world about him and his ministry leading up to this verse. And we're going to pick it up as he describes what they will experience as they tell the world about him. Jesus says, Behold, I am sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves, So, be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, not if, but when, Do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say, for what you are to say will be given to you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother over to death, and father his child, and children will rise against parents and have them put to death, and you will be hated by all for my name's sake." But the one who endures to the end will be saved. When they persecute you in one town, flee to the next. For truly I say to you, you will not have gone through all the towns of Israel before the Son of Man comes. A disciple is not above his teacher, nor a servant above his master. It is enough for the disciple to be like his teacher and the servant like his master. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebul or Satan the devil, how much more will they malign those of his household? Jesus speaks a serious warning to those who are given the task of telling others the good news that he has come to bring to the world. He doesn't promise that the kingdom that he is building will be a kingdom of joy in the immediate future. That joy comes later. In fact, you you might wonder how Jesus, as the author and perfecter of the faith, ever got followers to follow him With warnings like this, you will be hated, you will be persecuted, you will be flogged, you will be beaten. And it's not only true of the disciples, it's true of those that they converted. And Peter is writing not to super Christians, he's not writing to professional Christians, he's writing to everyday believers, telling them very much like Jesus that they will suffer. It's not a question of if, it's a question of when. And believe it or not, uh, the way I intended to begin my message last week, which I did not have the privilege of preaching last week, the way I intended to begin my message was with these words. My main job as a dad is not to keep my kids safe. I still believe that to be true. I don't, did I tell you that? Did you know that? Okay, I, I, I knew I talked about it with Chris. I, was, I still believe that to be true. Moms, your main job as a mother is actually not to keep your kids safe. And I'll even add this. Our job as citizens is not primarily to make the country a great place for our kids and grandkids to live. Not if you're citizens of heaven first. I believe, although of course, as a dad, and of course, if you're a mom, it makes sense to give every ounce of your strength to protect your kids. The the problem is, our strength will fail. 
Our ability to protect is insufficient, as was painfully clear last week. The reality is, my most important job as a Christian dad, your most important job as a Christian mom, is to teach your kids to trust in Jesus Christ so that when the world is dangerous, they have a foundation that cannot fail. To be blunt, there is no hope for a human institution, whether it's a state or a nation or any other type of human institution. They have limited shelf value. The hope that I want to give my kids is that no matter what happens in Michigan or America or globally, that they would know Christ and that they would be prepared to meet him face to face. And I'm speaking as a dad because this is something I've heard so many people say, especially if you're not happy politically, you know, and it doesn't matter who's in power, somebody's not happy politically. So many people have said, we're losing this nation. So many people have said, I just want my kids to be able to inherit a better country than I did. And the reality is, that's not your main job. We never had the nation to begin with. And our main job is to equip our kids. I pray that some of the kids in our church will actually go and, and live as foreign missionaries that they would not reap the benefits, if there are any real benefits, of remaining in America. But instead, they would say that for the sake of Jesus Christ, there's something greater and something better. And no matter how hard and how difficult it is, that they would give everything for the sake of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. And that we would have a culture within our church that would be excited about sending people away to tell others about the good news of Jesus. That they can know God. That they can know God in all of his awesome holiness. That it's a privilege and a joy and a delight. There's no greater joy than to know God and to be known by God. And so I've been talking mostly to moms and dads, grandmas and grandpas, but there's a large group of you that say, man, I, I'm not around little kids. Does this, this, this message have anything for me? Well, yes, it does. Because our main job is not only to equip other people to suffer, but to be ready to suffer ourselves. Some of you are seniors, and, and you're in that stage of life where everything seems to be going downhill a little bit. The aches and pains don't get better anymore. And so what does this passage of Scripture have to say to you? And I want to describe a guy, I feel like for so many reasons I shouldn't use his name, so I'm not going to do it, but he's a guy that many of you would know. And in his final hours of life, he had maybe 48, maybe 72 hours to, to live. He went through some terrible hallucinations, and he was in incredible fear. He, he believed that aliens were in his room, and he just wanted to flee, but he was tied down to his hospital bed, so he couldn't. And I went and saw him just before they gave him, actually, they'd already administered the morphine, but it hadn't kicked in yet. They just wanted to help him sleep. And so I held his hand and I, and I sang to him, seeing that he was obviously in fear and then watched as he drifted off to sleep, prayed by his bedside, left and came back the next day. And the next day, I said, did you... Did you did you know I was here? And he's, oh yeah. Did, did you hear me at all? He's, yeah, absolutely. So by the way, just as an aside, when you're at the hospital bed with someone else, whether it's a loved one or you're just visiting someone, just always assume they can hear you. Chances are really good that they can. Say the things that matter most. Sing with them, pray with them. It's a ministry that, that blesses people who are suffering. But what he said to me was not only that he could hear me and he was encouraged through some singing. What he said to me is, I know in a better and a deeper way what my wife has experienced with her decades of mental illness. And he was so thankful that God had given him a window into her suffering. He wasn't bitter. He wasn't angry. He didn't look at God and say, God, why did you allow this to happen to me? Instead, 
He believed that God had a deeper purpose in his life, even 72 hours before he was gonna see Jesus face to face, that God was at work in his heart and in his soul through his suffering so that he would be more like Jesus to the people around him. And it's my hope that when I'm on my deathbed one day, that instead of being afraid and instead of being angry, that I'll have the same beautiful, brilliant glory shining out from my attitude even as my body is breaking and failing because my faith has been tested and developed and tried and strengthened through the suffering that Jesus has allowed in my life. Some of you seniors are already near that time in your life and I believe that this passage will help strengthen and equip you. That it's not only the types of suffering that come because you are a public evangelist and may be thrown in jail. It's the type of suffering that God wisely permits in your life. And that that suffering has a purpose in your life. If you're curious, what's the main point of this message? I've begun with a scripture reading where where Jesus issues this warning. You will be persecuted. You will suffer. If they have persecuted the son of man and they have killed him, how much more will they do to you who are his followers? No one is above the master. No one is above Jesus. And if Jesus endured it, we will endure it as well. The guarantee in your life is that you will suffer. And so the main point of this message is I want you to see the suffering of Christ and love him more. I want you to see the suffering of Christ and love him more. And as you do that, I want to urge you with the clear command of our passage today to be done with sin in your life. So two two parts of this main point. Love Jesus more. Be done with the sin that you struggle with. And I'm looking at your faces here. And for those of you online, I can't even see your faces. I don't know what sin you may struggle with. But I guarantee you, all of us struggle with something. Whether it's a kind of fear that makes it look like God doesn't love us or take care of us. Or whether it's a type of discouragement that doubts God's goodness. Or whether it's sins of lust or gluttony or or just being a consumer and trying to meet your needs through never-ending TV watching while we fail to pray and to serve and to love. I, I don't know what particular sin you might be tempted with, but if you grasp the truth of Jesus suffering for you, Peter says that we need to be done with sin. So I've got three points this morning. The first is this. We need to be ready to suffer by thinking like Jesus. Be ready to suffer by thinking like Jesus. And I'm in the book of First Peter. If you haven't turned there yet, I apologize. I should have said this earlier. I'm in First Peter chapter four, and we're gonna be looking at verses one through six today. And my first point, be ready by thinking like Jesus. I believe the hardest part of this sermon is the simple truth that most of our suffering is not actually for the sake of being a Christian. And for those of you who, because of where you work, maybe you have some small risk that if you say the wrong thing, you could lose your job. The odds of us being thrown in jail or physically persecuted in America are so low. I don't want to preach this message as if we are a deeply suffering people. The truth is we're not. I know pastors who have been thrown in jail. I think of David Livingston, a pastor in India. He's been beaten for Christ. This passage speaks to him in a deep and a powerful way that it doesn't connect with us. So the biggest challenge to this message is that we don't suffer the same way for Christ. And if we are threatened, in fact, anytime we are threatened by legislation that people warn us will have deep effects on churches and Christian institutions all across the country, the first thing we do is we fight tooth and nail to protect ourselves by electing someone who will uphold our rights. And Peter doesn't say, try to change the government. Peter tries to change the Christian so that the Christian is ready to endure whatever God has ordained. 
Now, I'm not saying we shouldn't be politically active. I encourage every believer to vote their conscience. I believe that you must vote your conscience as a faithful follower of Christ. So I'm not saying just let go and don't do anything. But what I am saying is there is no place in your life as a Christian for fear because someone else has been elected, period. I don't care who it is. There's no place for fear for yourself or even for your children and grandchildren. God is sovereign not just for you. He is sovereign for them. If he has called them to a darker hour in American history, he will equip them with greater grace. So recognize we must be ready by thinking like Jesus. The question is, how does Jesus think? So look with me at these two verses here, beginning in 1 Peter chapter 4. And begin to think with me about the mind of Christ. Peter writes, Since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. For whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live for the rest of the time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. Now, Peter says something, he says, arm yourselves, be ready. He has the same urgency as all of the people who are blowing up the internet with all of their fear and predictions. He recognizes that the danger is real, but the way he says to prepare for it, the way he says to arm yourself is by having the same thinking. And he points to the suffering of Christ. The first thing he says here is, since therefore Christ suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves with the same way of thinking. What does he mean by that? I think he means the exact same thing that Jesus said. Since Christ suffered, since they persecuted him, they will persecute you. Jesus said, if they hated me, they will hate you too. Sometimes because you choose to not do the same things as the people around you, you will not be close friends with them. Sometimes because you do not approve of the lifestyle choices of your family and friends, they will look at you and accuse you of being judgmental, even as you're just trying to be a faithful Christian. There will be times when you are trying to be obedient, and because of that, You will suffer. And I believe part of what Peter is saying is to be forewarned is to be forearmed, right? To know in advance that it's coming means that you won't be surprised when it happens. When being a faithful follower of Jesus costs you your job one day, when being a faithful follower of Jesus means we lose our tax-exempt status and can't have a building because there's no way to pay taxes on property like this as a small church, When that happens, do not be surprised, angry, or upset. Instead, recognize that it's happening because it happened to Jesus. And if it happened to Jesus, it will happen to us in one way or another. Do not be surprised. Peter says that you need to be armed. And he does not mean with something that is a futile attempt to keep yourself safe. Paul says this this thing. He says, the weapons of our warfare are not carnal. They are not fleshly. We don't need a church militia. We need the mighty weapons of God. Paul says, they are mighty to the pulling down of strongholds. And what did Paul do everywhere he went? Well, mostly he was stoned and kicked out of synagogues. Mostly he suffered very publicly. But the way that he suffered pointed people to Christ and his number one weapon was preaching. And you might say, well, I'm not a preacher. Well, that's fine. If you're a faithful follower of Jesus, you handle the word of God in the way that you were called. Maybe just by faithfully reading it and knowing it and being dedicated to it so that when you're in a hospital bed and people don't understand why you can sweetly sing while the person in the hospital bed next to you is moaning. That is a weapon so that when you suffer, people see Jesus in your suffering. You arm yourself with the word of God Paul would have said, and Peter would have agreed, that a sermon is mightier than a sword. 
You equip yourself with the word of God ahead of time because you know that this is coming. And as you are a faithful follower of Jesus, you will suffer. But I want to point out something else. And this is a thought that is strange. And so I want to ask you to give me the benefit of the doubt for a minute. Because I want to prove something from scripture that I believe is so common once you see it, it's, it's just like a major paradigm shift. You, you used to think this way and now you think this way. And, and yet until someone said this to me, I never saw it. When we talk about suffering as 21st century American Christians, here's the way we emphasize it. Christ is with me in my suffering. So you might think of like, Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. And you think of your good shepherd as being with you and comforting you alongside you in your suffering. And that's not untrue. The writer of Hebrews mentions that the fact that Jesus said he will never leave us or forsake us is a powerful encouragement to those who are suffering. But here's where I think it misses something that's greater and one guy that I was talking to says, this is like comparing like a tiny little mallet that you might do like clockwork with, with a giant sledgehammer. You, you want the bigger tool. You want the better weapon. The reality that we miss is not that Jesus comes alongside us in our suffering, but that instead we share in the sufferings of Christ as we suffer as believers now that might seem like a weird thing because Jesus, the writer of Hebrews says, suffered once for sins and he's done suffering. In fact, Peter says the same thing in verse 18 of chapter three, Christ also suffered once for sins. But there's a biblical reality that the sufferings of Christ continue in his body, the church. Now it doesn't mean that Jesus is in heaven in agony. What it means is that our suffering is not separated from Jesus. It's not like he comes alongside us. It's like we come alongside him. And the father has an internal purpose in the work of Christ. You may say, okay, so where do you see this in the Bible and why does it matter? Well, a couple of things. And I've got a number of verses and I believe we should have some references that you can jot down. I think that they should be up on the screen. So yes, thank you. First um, Peter 4.13 talks about this how there is fellowship in the sufferings of Christ. Later in this chapter, Peter says, rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. In other words, you are suffering in the sufferings of Jesus. And you can think about this in a couple of ways. One of them Think about the martyr Stephen. Okay, he does exactly what Peter is talking about here. He tells people about Jesus. People reject the message. They hate him and they stone him and he dies. And as he's dying, the book of Acts tells us the heavens were open and he sees Jesus standing at the right hand of God. Now, they're not persecuting Stephen because they hate Stephen. They're persecuting Stephen because they hate Jesus. And so think about how a father feels when he sees his son or his daughter suffering. And the pain or how a mother feels when she, when she sees a son or a daughter suffering and the pain that they feel as they watch that other person that they love so deeply. There's a family connection with suffer. Now imagine if it's my fault as a dad because I didn't put that tool away or maybe they imitated me doing something that they weren't prepared to do yet. I remember as a little kid, hopefully this won't embarrass my parents too much, uh, I decided that I was going to help prepare some tacos. And while my dad's back was turned, I, I took a knife and I cut my finger really bad. Uh, and it bled and bled and bled and bled and bled. I was just doing something I'd seen my parents do. They were just chopping up some vegetables. And they think, oh, shoot, you know, like three is way too young to be handling sharp knives. It is. And you feel bad as a parent. You feel responsible. Well, now think about Jesus, okay? He teaches his followers to go out and tell them the good news of the kingdom. And as they obey him, they suffer because they're doing what he told them to do. And so he is suffering as our savior because of what we are doing. We are sharing in his suffering. 
Paul says this kind of confusing thing uh, in the book of Colossians. He says that he is making up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. He's making up what is lacking in the sufferings of Christ. Now you might say, okay, we know that the suffering of Jesus is perfect, right? It is perfect. There's nothing lacking when it comes to being an atonement for sin so that we can be forgiven before the Father. But here's what is lacking As Paul says that his suffering makes up for what's lacking in the suffering of Christ, he continues saying that his goal is to make the word known. Now you can make the word of God known in a couple of ways. Who here loves hypocrisy? Nobody? I got one face scratch and I don't think she meant to vote for you. Yeah, so here's what happens. If you tell your kids and your neighbors and the people around you, I'm a follower of Jesus. And if they watch in your life and see that you can repeat Bible verses and you know the gospel, and yet you don't live like it at all, you're saying one thing with your words and something different with your life. But if, when they watch your life, you demonstrate real faith in Jesus Christ, your life becomes a witness along with your words. And what Paul is saying in the book of Colossians is not that Jesus' suffering is somehow imperfect. What he's saying is it doesn't do people any good unless they know about it. And even words will fail if you don't have a lived example to match those words. So I can tell my kids over and over and over again, God loves you. But if I'm grouchy and angry with them, they won't believe it because as their dad, they're gonna assume that God is a lot like how I behave. And so the way that you live your life, and in our passage today, the way that you suffer in particular declares something about Jesus. And when you suffer as a believer, your suffering preaches the gospel to people who haven't heard it. And I'm not talking about people who haven't heard the words. I'm talking about people who haven't seen it lived out. Okay, I never saw Jesus on the cross die. I didn't, I wasn't there. I wouldn't be born for another 2,000 years. But I have seen people who trusted in Jesus Christ suffer with beautiful faith. And their suffering declared to me that the message of Jesus is real and powerful. And here's how the suffering of Paul would have made up what was lacking in the suffering of Christ. As he was stoned, and just read through the book of Acts. Paul's not the only one to suffer in the book of Acts. Stephen dies. Peter is thrown into jail. Paul and Barnabas are thrown into jail in Acts 16. And and they rejoice for the privilege of suffering for the name of Jesus. They're singing songs in the middle of the night. And, And as you watch Paul live his life, Even if you worship another God or even if you're a Jew and you deny that Jesus is the Messiah, you watch him get stoned and then two days later he's in a synagogue telling people about Jesus, you're gonna scratch your head and go, what is happening? Why doesn't this guy quit? Why doesn't this guy go home? But the truth is that his suffering showed the truth of the message that he preached. So his suffering became a powerful weapon in the preaching and proclamation of the gospel. And saints, here's what I wanna say to you is that's also true of your life. Nobody likes hypocrisy. And I wanna be gentle and loving and careful here because here's the thing. If when you suffer, you become bitter or angry, you begin to complain about these awful nurses or the hospital or or these ignorant doctors, If when life in your family is difficult and you as the believer are known as being the gossip or you complain to your kids about whoever or, I mean, let's apply it in the church. If when you experience conflict in the church, the thing you talk about most is how frustrating other believers are in your own congregation, you are not showing the heart of Christ. 
But if again and again, you show a heart of forgiveness and grace because of the grace that you've received in Jesus, even when things are hard, in fact, especially when things are hard, your suffering becomes a weapon in the arsenal of God's army so that you declare the gospel not only with your words, but with your attitude and with your actions. It's all over the New Testament. Paul writes in 2 Corinthians, for as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. It's not about being miserable for Jesus. It's about learning how to have that comfort and joy in suffering. And I believe that there's four things that this kind of suffering does. Number one, I'm going to give these to you real quickly. Number one, our suffering helps us love Christ more. Our suffering helps us love Christ more. Because you can read about the sufferings of Jesus, but until you've experienced some suffering, you have no way to measure it or relate to it or understand it. In fact, I don't believe we'll ever fully understand the depth of the suffering that Jesus endured for us. I don't believe it's possible, but I believe we can learn more and more about it. Like that man who, who, who said after his crazy experience in the hospital that he understood a little bit more of the sufferings that his wife endured with some, some of her uh, mental health issues. Any suffering that you experience can begin to give you a window into the suffering that Jesus endured for you, his mental anguish in the garden, the physical pain of being beaten and crucified, the mockery and scorn that was heaped upon him as people made fun of him and claimed that he was actually not a prophet. All of that gives you a window into what Christ endured for you and as you understand his suffering, you love him more. Number two, our suffering helps us show Christ more. And I've already talked a lot about that, so I'm not gonna say any more, but our suffering helps us show Christ more. It's the most natural thing in the world is to complain or to seek something to numb the pain or to look for a way out. But if we endure patiently and even joyfully, people will wonder who this Jesus is that makes it possible to endure such terrible suffering. Not only that, we understand Jesus' fellowship with us in a deeper way. And I do believe it's absolutely true that our shepherd is with us in the valley of the shadow of death, whatever that type of suffering is. And I wanna read your verse that, that Paul writes in the book of Philippians. Paul says in Philippians 3, starting verse eight, he says, indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord. For his sake, I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish. Now, his goal as a person was to travel all around the ancient world. He didn't have a house. He didn't have any physical possessions. He lost everything he owned so many times that he had to be a charity case multiple occasions, and he had to work to try to provide for himself as a tent maker. He had nothing but he counted everything that he had had up to that point, even his good reputation as a Jew, he counted it as rubbish in order that he may gain Christ, verse nine, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and may share his sufferings becoming like him in his death, that by any means possible, I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Suffering as a believer helps you partner with Christ in a deep and an intimate way. There's a missionary called John Patton. I've mentioned a little bit about, uh, one of the jokes about Jack, Jack's legal name is actually John. And I joke that we named him after half of human history because there are so many Johns. But John Patton is one of the men that we did name him after. Patton lost his first wife and his first child to, to a type of dysentery while he was serving as a missionary. He buried them himself. And he was under constant danger and threats because the people that he was trying to tell, tell Jesus, or the people he was trying to share the gospel with, 
were cannibals. Um, and they didn't try to kill him all the time, but it was very common for them to threaten him. And one of the ways that he said he knew Christ in a deep and an intimate personal way was when his life was in danger. He tells of one time that he was forced to climb this tree and to hide all night while people were hunting for him, trying to kill him. And he said in that time, he experienced a sweetness of the presence of Christ he had never experienced in his life before and that he would give anything to have it again. Now, saints, we don't like to suffer. We try to escape from suffering. And I wonder if sometimes we don't know Christ as well as we could because our first impulse is to look for a way out when we should be looking for the person of Christ who is with us and understand what he's doing. Patton's story inspired so many thousands of missionaries. And in fact, he lived about 150 years ago. And to this day, the islands where he ministered as a missionary are still 80% Christian. The fact that he was willing to endure the insane sufferings of losing a wife and a child, of being threatened so many times, of even having years of so-called failure as a missionary where it seemed like he was accomplishing nothing. And yet his endurance and patience as a missionary, understanding the presence of Christ in his life, there are at this point hundreds of thousands of people that know Jesus because of his faithfulness as a missionary. Now, you might not be called to suffer in the same way John Patton did. You might not be called to minister in the same way. But Jesus will use your suffering if you seek him in it. Not only does our suffering help us love Christ more, not only does our suffering help us show Christ more, not only do we understand his fellowship with us as we experience suffering, but our sufferings can help us forsake sin. So at the end of verse 2, Peter talks about no longer living in the flesh for human passions, but for the will of God. So he says in verse 3, don't sin like the world. Read with me. He says, for the time that is past suffices for doing what the Gentiles want to do. And he's using Gentiles to really say unbelievers, those who don't follow Jesus. That time is past living in sensuality, passions, drunkenness, orgies, drinking parties, and lawless idolatry. With respect to this, they are surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery and they malign you. But they will give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. Now he's issuing this kind of gentle warning, says don't sin like the world. And he says this kind of confusing thing. He says, that the, the body that suffers is done with sin. And I skipped over it. That's in verse one. He says, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin. He's not saying that your suffering is gonna make you morally perfect. There's not a person alive who is not a, still a sinner. In fact, I was reading a, a little bit of John Calvin's Institutes and, and he describes something so perfectly. I, I wanna read you what he said because if you are a believer in Jesus, you have a Holy Spirit alive and at work in you, and yet you also have all of your sinful desires. They don't go away. They don't vanish, and you will have failures within your life. And so then you become very discouraged, and you wonder, am I even saved? Am I a believer? Is Jesus at work in my heart at all? And this tension goes back and forth, and it's at war within you. Calvin writes, this produces a conflict which sorely tries the believer throughout his life because he is raised high by the spirit, but he's brought low by the flesh. In the spirit, he yearns fervently for immortality. In the flesh, he turns aside into the path of death. In the spirit, he purposes to live uprightly and in the flesh, he is goaded to do evil. In the spirit, he is led to God. In the flesh, he is beaten back. In the spirit, he despises the world. In the flesh, he longs for worldly pleasures. And this is no idle speculation divorced from our experience of life. It is a practical doctrine whose truth we experience for ourselves if we are God's children. Now, did you catch what he said that... that 
we long for the passions that Peter tells us that we should be done with, that is true. If you experience that pull in your heart, you're not abnormal. But Calvin then says this, so we see that flesh and spirit are like two combatants laying separate claim to the believing soul and turning it into a battleground. Yet it is the spirit who wins out in the end. For when it is said that the flesh turns the soul away from God, distances it from immortality, stops it from following holiness and righteousness, and alienates it from the kingdom of God, we must not think that its temptations are strong enough to overthrow and destroy the Spirit's work and to extinguish his power. Your flesh, as a believer, is not strong enough to overcome the Holy Spirit, period. And so as you war within your flesh and seek to surrender to the spirit at work in your life, have the faith and confidence and hope that the spirit will win. Be encouraged. When Peter says that the body that suffers is done with sin, Jesus has already won the victory in your heart and life. If you came here today and and you failed at something in the past week, and I don't care what that something is, if you know your sin and you're ashamed of it, be encouraged that the Spirit of God will win the war in your heart and in your life. When Peter says that the body that suffers is done with sin and he encourages believers to turn away from it, he does so with the confidence that Jesus has already won the victory. But hear me, please don't be complacent. Please don't give room for the devil. You will not be effective as a believer. You will not enjoy the fellowship of Christ if you make way for the flesh. The Bible teaches that you will grieve the spirit of God that's in you, that your loving heavenly father will discipline you and you will not have a life of joy and you will not have a testimony that draws people to Christ. So I wanna urge you with the clear teaching of scripture that whatever you struggle with, commit again today to turning away from it. Do not indulge your flesh, but instead submit to the spirit of God again and again. Be ready by being done with the sins in your life. I know so often we as Christians play these silly games where we'll recognize really bad sin here and so we'll be okay with kind of mild sin here. So like if we think about it in terms of movie ratings, right? So like we're not gonna watch the X-rated stuff, we might watch the R-rated stuff and we don't feel bad about PG-13 and anything that's PG is totally fine. When in reality, we ought to have an entirely different system for assessing what's good and right and holy and pure. We shouldn't say, you know what, and this, like, some people play these games where, like, okay, I'm okay with watching a movie that has a sex scene in it, but I won't watch a movie that has nudity in it, because that's my line. When God is telling you, pursue holiness, don't make these stupid arbitrary lines, run the other way. Don't assume you're fine because you have these standards. Pursue holiness in your life. Christian, don't seek to live a PG or a PG-13 life. Seek to live a holy life. Seek to know God's standards and to conform to his standard. You know, they say imitation is the sincerest form of flattery. What does it say about Christian entertainment when we want to have the same types of movies and the same types of music and we're just a step or two behind everything else that the world does? It says that we secretly want to be exactly like them when we should be exactly like Christ. Now don't miss me. I, like, I am an electric guitar player. I'm not making a commentary on styles of music or anything like that. I believe that the church ought to be a redeemed version of the culture where it's planted, not a preserved version of our grandfa- grandparents' culture. So I'm not making a commentary about whether or not it's right to watch movies or anything like that. What I'm doing is I'm pleading with you to pursue holiness Don't invent your own standard of what that looks like. Keep your eyes on Jesus and follow his standard. Peter mentioned some things very clearly like drunkenness and orgies and drinking. Understand what the Bible has to say about sex outside of marriage and don't mess with it. Understand that it's for your good that God has given you these commands and told you to pursue holiness. If you do not do that, Peter tells us at the very end, Be ready 
because God is the just judge. Verse six, he says, this is why the gospel was preached even to those who are dead, that though judged in the flesh the way people are, they might live in the spirit the way God does. Now that might seem like a confusing verse. All Peter's talking about is Christians who have already passed away. They have the good news that Jesus died for their sins and rose from the dead, and then they died before he returned. And some people would look at that in this time and say, well, believing in Jesus didn't seem to do them any good. They died. And Peter says, no, they just haven't been raised yet. And understand that all of us, whether you're alive right now or whether you died 2,000 years ago, all of us will be judged by God. He is the judge of the living and the dead. And remember, in this passage, Peter's already talked about the example of Noah. And think about Noah's life. God says to him, I am going to destroy the world. You build an ark. Now think about what Peter would say to Noah. Okay, Noah, people are gonna pick on you because you're building an ark and they've never seen an ocean. People are gonna make fun of you because you're building this giant boat that doesn't make sense in a world that doesn't have rain. Okay, Noah, people are gonna pick on you because you're following a God that no one else believes in. And Noah suffers for over 100 years while he patiently builds the ark. Peter would have said to him, know that God is the one who judges the living and the dead. God will equip you and save you and rescue you. And also, Noah, don't do the same things the people around you are doing because God is judging the world for those things. The flood is coming. And if you understand the flood came in Noah's day, Peter is saying there is a judgment that is coming that is inescapable. Do not sin in the way non-believers sin. If it made no sense for Noah to say, you know what, God gave me an ark, I'm good, I'm gonna do what I want. If that made sense for Noah and it doesn't, then it doesn't make any sense for us to say, you know what, Jesus died for my sins, I'll be okay. You know, I'm not gonna be a super Christian, I'm just gonna do my best. Don't have that attitude. Don't be complacent. Recognize that God is a just judge and you wanna live a life that delights your savior and your father. The judgment seat of Christ is for believers. In Revelation 20, we read about the great white throne judgment where God raises the dead and judges every person according to their works. And Paul writes to believers in Romans and, and describes how one day all of us will be judged by our works. Now you're saying, wait a minute, we're saved by grace, right? And we are saved by grace. But when you're saved by grace, it changes your life and your works give evidence of your faith. And so believer, I wanna urge you to be ready by, to suffer by being done with sin. Don't make place for it in your life. And there are so many people here today and people that I can't even see. I don't know what God might be doing in your hearts. But I wanna urge you to spend some time in prayer asking for the Lord's forgiveness if he's convicted you. Asking for the Lord's strength as you think about the way Jesus loves you and suffered on your behalf. And it's my prayer that the church would be encouraged to recognize that Jesus is still building his church, that people are still being saved and you and I are a part of it as we proclaim the good news and as we live our lives that point people to Christ. And so I wanna urge you, be done with sin and love your savior. Would you pray with me? Father, you are the God who saves. You saved Noah you saved Esther, you saved Daniel, you saved your people out of Egypt. Lord, for those who have believed, you've called each and every one of them, given them new life and called them out of their sin. Lord, I pray for strength for believers to forsake sin in their lives. I ask for help that you would make us holy. And Father, for those who do not know you, God, give them a sense of urgency that your holy judgment is coming. I pray that they would seek the forgiveness of sins through the blood of Jesus. And I ask that you would grant them faith even now. And I pray this in Jesus' name, amen. So to wrap up service today, I actually had two scripture readings this morning. 
And I wanted to leave you with this scripture reading. Uh, if, if you have a bulletin, you, you can always download our bulletins. You've got almost every scripture that I've mentioned today as well as this one. And the scripture reading that I want to close with is, oh, it's in my notes. <laughs> Hebrews, or excuse me, uh, Matthew chapter 10. It's the, it's the rest of Matthew chapter 10. Verses 24 through 23. So in the beginning part of the passage that I read to you, Jesus warns his followers that they will suffer. In the second half of this chapter, I believe he gives them powerful encouragement so that they're able to suffer. Starting in verse 26 of Matthew chapter 10, he says this. So, Christian, who's about to suffer, have no fear of them. For nothing is covered that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. What I tell you in the dark, say in the light, and what you hear whispered, proclaim on the housetops. And do not fear those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a penny? And not one of them will fall to the ground apart from your father. But even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, therefore, you who are of more value than many sparrows. So everyone who acknowledges me before men, I will acknowledge before my Father who is in heaven. But whoever denies me before men, I will deny before my Father in heaven. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. I've not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father and a daughter against her mother and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. Whoever loves father and mother more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever loves son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. Whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Jesus gives awesome strength and encouragement when he tells you that the father loves you more than many sparrows. That the father will be with you. I want to encourage you to walk in your Father's love and to pick up your cross and follow Christ. Go in peace.